That was the undertones. <clears throat> Excuse me. I should do that before the show, shouldn't I? <clears throat> Teenage kicks through the night. Pretty cool tune. You know what I loved about the undertones? They could actually play their instruments. Uh, there was something uh, somewhat charming about the punk rock bands that couldn't play their instruments, but I always enjoyed people that could play their instruments mainly because I couldn't play one. You would think that I would enjoy the people that couldn't play, but I like to do, I like to watch people that can do things that I can't do. Like I used to really be into track and field and uh, there's nothing I could ever do in track and field. Maybe I could run long distance. If I trained my body, I might've been able to run long distance, but even that would have been a, a real slog. So I like watching track and field because people run really fast in track and field. I was never a fast runner. I was okay, but I wasn't like really fast. I couldn't throw a shot put or a javelin. I didn't have the core strength to do a pole vault. I certainly couldn't do a high jump and the hurdles, forget it. I couldn't get my body to do all those things simultaneously at one time. So I enjoy watching track and field because I can't do it. Um, <clears throat> similarly, I enjoy watching bands that can play their instruments because I can't play an instrument. I don't want to watch people who can't play instruments. Although sometimes it works. 
sometimes. Anyway, welcome to another edition of 15 Minutes of Flame. I'm Robert Phoenix, and if you are here live, you're watching the visual component of the, uh, it's called the bycast, because every day now I do put up a podcast version across our vast network of podcast distribution, including iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Podchaser, uh, Podcast Finder. So a whole number of, of ways to listen to the program. Also, there is a, a player that I do embed on uh, every uh, every show. Yesterday, I embedded it right after the show. I will endeavor to embed again today after the show has been completed. So behind me, uh, kind of a theme here, like the man behind the curtain. So if you're familiar with the movie Zardoz, uh, over my, uh, would be my left shoulder, my right shoulder, my right shoulder left to you on the screen. Uh, that's Arthur Dent, who is the, uh, the Wizard of Oz or Zardoz in the bizarre, brilliant cult film directed by John Borman starring Sean Connery as a uh, savage in a thong who is the leader of a group of savages who kill to keep the population down but also indulge in a little bit of, uh, oh, I, I guess the the, uh, the most gentle way I can say it, rape along the way. And Arthur Dent is a human, and humans in this world have perfected near immortality, perfected the ability to psychically manipulate their environment perfected the ability to telepathically communicate with one another. And yet their society that they've created is vulnerable and also quite boring. And so Arthur Dent decides he's going to create his own world and the outland of the remnants of the earth are occupied by savages who ride around on horseback. And so what he does is he, creates a cosmology and he becomes a God. He becomes Zardoz and he supplies his savage minions with guns and they go out and they kill people and they all wear masks that look like the giant head that descends upon the barren wastelands of the hinterlands, the outer world that he's created. So he's the man behind the curtain. So he's the man behind me today. That's Arthur Dent, who is Zardoz. We're going to be talking about the people behind the curtain, men and women. And uh, it's going to be hopefully an interesting show because I want to peel back a few layers as to who the, the main players are, where they come from, and their influence on American culture and society and 
military actions, which are quite deep and pervasive. So we're going to be calling out a couple of families today on the show. And no, we're not talking about the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, this will be names. Some names will be familiar to you. Some might be somewhat familiar to you. If you're new to the podcast or this stream, uh, you'll understand where I'm going and what I'm talking about and who the architects of affliction are in this part of the world. They're the same architects of affliction that were in St. Petersburg in 1917. They're the same architects of affliction that started nearly three decades of turmoil and upheaval in Afghanistan. They're the same architects of affliction that convinced the American people to go into Afghanistan. I'm not just talking the American invasion of Afghanistan. I'm talking about also the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. It's the same people that convinced the American people, the same architects of affliction that created the scenario in Iraq, the destabilization and the ultimate devastation of Iraq. The same architects of affliction who are responsible for the invasion of Libya. They are the men and women behind the curtain. And today we're about to pull the curtain back and take a closer look at the brain trust with family connections and family roots. It's a family business. And the family business goes all the way back to Europe and countries in and around the region that is getting our attention at this very time. So, Buckle up. We're gonna we're gonna dissect two specific families and the members within those families. I'm also gonna take a brief little pit stop somewhere along the way with who the man who I think is hands down the greatest researcher of the 20th century. And there are some good ones, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of really great ones, but you know, my lead, my lead horse or my lead dog in this hunt is Anthony Sutton. And Anthony Sutton's accomplishments are numerous. Anthony Sutton is the first researcher that pulls back the curtain on skull and bones. Anthony Sutton is the researcher that enlightens us to what's called the Hegelian dialectic. It's through his work that the Hegelian dialectic emerges. It's Anthony Sutton's tireless research that leads to his strong convictions that there is a conspiracy between the capitalists and the communists and that they're related to uh, international banking interests. And Anthony Sutton was an academic for a number of years and he had to leave his cushy academic post at the Hoover Institute because they didn't want him publishing or speaking about the topics that we're going to talk about today. And because he was a free radical and Aquarian, uh, at some point in time, he had to break the tradition. And some of his best talks take place in a very unusual environment. Uh, they take place at the uh, Elizabeth Clare Prophet community in Montana. And his talks with Elizabeth Clare Prophet are some of the most illuminating talks on the subject of Russian 
slash Soviet and American collusion in power that I've ever heard. And Elizabeth Clare Prophet was this woman who comes out of this very strange kind of lineage of the um, I am and the seven rays and uh, St. Germain and Kathumi and El Moria, all these characters, these people, these entities, these um, agents of maintaining the uh, integrity of the seven rays of creation. Like she, it, she comes out of that tradition through her husband, Mark Prophet. And Mark, Mark Prophet's claim to fame was that he was taken into Mount Shasta and he was shown the secrets of the universe and creation by a group living within Mount Shasta who were part of the great white brotherhood and the earthly initiates and adepts who were connected to the ascended masters in the great seven rays. So she, she marries Mark Prophet and eventually Mark Prophet, who, who becomes uh, a, an ascended master unto himself. He goes by the name of Lanello. She marries him and eventually he passes away and she becomes the heir to the keeper of the violet flame. And she creates this very interesting and strange compound in Montana. And she holds these talks in Montana at the compound where she brings people in. And she brought Anthony Sutton in on a number of occasions, at least three that I'm aware of. And they have a very interesting and fond relationship with one. It's one of the strange, it's like, if I could use like a rock and roll analogy, it would be something like um, Debbie Boone uh, teaming up with David Bowie. Something along those lines. Or who would Sutton be? Sutton would be somebody much more mainstream. Like, let's let's say Sutton is, uh, he's kind of a mainstream. Let's say Sutton is Glenn Campbell. Glenn Campbell. Even though Sutton's English, but we're going to use Glenn Campbell. And the equivalent for uh, Elizabeth Clare Prophet would be like Lena Lovich. That's how strange this connection is. But because Sutton's an Aquarian, he can eventually, he rolls with it. So we're going we're gonna to take a little bit of a pit stop along the way with uh, Sutton and uh, Claire Prophet in one of their talks. But primarily, it's about the people behind the curtain. Also, I played the undertones for a reason today. They're a great band. They had two uh, killer albums. The first one, which we heard, and then the, the second one, which has Julie Ocean and a number of other songs. Uh, the lead singer, Fear Gal Sharky. I, I don't know why Fear Gal Sharky didn't lead to more kids being named Fear Gal. Or Fergal. I think you probably pronounce it Fergal, but it's spelled Fear Gal. Because he was kind of a badass. I mean, he had that high voice, but, you know, he had an edge. Fear, Fear, Fergal was a little dangerous. I told the story before. I, I saw him one time at a music convention for the business many years after that. He was in the same line as me waiting to get coffee or whatever at, at a stand in uh, Berlin. He knew that I knew who he was. Like, oh man, this is Fergal Sharkey. At that time, he was the head of a label. Like he was, I think, 
you know, EMI or something like that. They promoted him. So he was making a really good salary and he was, he was a featured speaker there. I'm like, dude, I used to listen to you. It was just one of those moments, you know, when you know, and the other person knows that you know that they are, but you don't really break that wall. I've, I seldom do that. If I see somebody famous and I've seen a few famous people, I, I generally don't break that wall unless I feel moved to break the wall. One time I did that. And it was at one of these music conferences. And Evander Holyfield, the heavyweight champ, um, had a record label. And I've told this story before, but some of you might be new here. And he had this record label. Um, what was it called? Like Real Champ Records or something like that. It was kind of this R&B, hip-hop label, independent. I don't know if anybody ever came out of it that was memorable, but he was there. He had a, his label had a booth at one of these fest, these, one of these music conferences. This one was in, in Cannes in France, the South of France. And um, I'm going to show you here. I'll do a little visual. Then we get into Chatlandia and then we got a lot of ground to cover. So let me do this. Just to give you a visual. So there was this guy uh, named Lee Woodall, and he played football for the for the 49ers. And he played linebacker. And um, he was a pretty good linebacker, I have to say. Uh, he had a brief run, about, about, about a five or six-year run. He was fast. Lee Woodall could cover a lot of ground. So if you're watching here, if you're listening, I'm just going to throw this visual out there. And uh, so Lee Woodall looked a lot like Evander Holyfield, which you can see here. And what's weird, and again, I told this story. I think I was uh, at a Zim's. They had these Zim's restaurants. And there was a Zim's in uh, San Jose. And it was, uh, I don't know like around 11.30 midnight. One time I was in there and Lee Woodall was at the Zim's. And this was before I would go to Cannes and see Evander Holyfield. And this is one of those days where I was kind of like, I wasn't really hung over, but I, but I was, you know, I was in that weird, like, Hey, I'm still kind of drunk and hung over phase. So I wasn't like puking. I didn't have a headache. It was just, you kind of wrung out, not much sleep, but still some alcohol flowing through my veins anyway. So I walked up to Lee Woodall and I said, Hey, I know you, I know you. And he smiled and I said, you're Lee Woodall. <laughs> he didn't like that, but the guys around him from his label, they started laughing. Now, Vander Holyfield couldn't punch me. He would have liked to have punched me, though, in that moment. That's one of the few times I broke the wall rule. Um, anyway, I didn't break with Fury. I'll show you. Let's go to chat. Taria. 
and uh, let's see what you guys are talking about and just do a name check and a roll call here. And hopefully everything is moving according to plan. Um, I usually do a bit of a preview on the chat. Ah, look, we're good. My quality control is there. Good. We got TJ, my man, Thomas Jordan, Miss Nakia in the house. There's Sony. Ryan, IWW, I like that, Independent Woodworkers. Just throw another, another W in there, Ryan, Independent Woodworkers of the World. Independent Woodworkers of the World Unite. The International Brotherhood of Introspective Independent Woodworkers. Rue Nine in the house. There's my man, Steve, Thor by the door. JMP Love, Jacqueline, nice to see you. It's great to see you when you were out here. Always, always a kick. Not a teenage kick. But if I knew you when you were a teen, I bet you and I would have had some teenage kicks. CC, what's going on? Season had JJ, JJ Ryan DeBlanc. Who is the coolest cat? Speaking of cats, uh, Jasper is hanging out with Rosie on the bed. He's getting his teenage kicks. Julie Sunshine, what's going on, big cat mama? Triple three in the house. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have here? DJ, MC, Michael Sister Nino. That would be, I still think that'd be a great name for a band, Sister Nino. You could use it. Kelly B. Uh, listen to this. She had a mind-blown moment this morning. Short version, my five-year-old daughter heard a portion of Painted Black and said, that sounds like Scorpio Rising. <laughs> oh, boy. The youth of today. I like that. Uh, I may have let her hear a bit too much astrology stuff recently. They absorb way more than we realize. That's true. Speaking of which, it was my son's birthday yesterday, which I didn't mention on the show. Happy birthday. Although I know he doesn't listen to the show. One of his buddies does. By the way, um, I will be on the road next week. And I will be, <laughs> I'll be in Port Aransas on spring break. I've never been on spring break before. I have never been on spring break. And uh, it was not a thing when I was growing up. We, you know, we didn't, I don't even think we had spring break as a kid. We had Easter. That was our spring break. But I live in California where, you know, spring break, it was all the spring break all the time in California. I don't know. I did, we didn't have spring break. And then I realized in other parts of the country, spring break was a, was a big thing. And here in Texas, they take a week for spring break. So I will be uh, on spring break. I'll be like Rodney Dangerfield. And it'll be great. I'll have somebody here manning the casa, which will be great, taking care of the feelings. Oh, by the way, the little black cat, uh, who I call Little Black Samba, uh, because she reminds me of Black Orpheus. She's very black, thick coat, Little Black Samba. Anyway, she's. I saw her today. I thought she might have perished during the cold spell. 
anyway, um, she's here still, and uh, we'll have somebody looking after her on the home front, which will be cool. But I'm going to be doing spring break, and next Friday will be a show with the um, young men of Generation Z. It's going to be two hours of high testosterone, Gen Z reality. Well, about as close as it can get. You know, I have a feeling my kid is a, is a practical joker. He's a monkey. And I, I just get the sense that there's a practical joke w- waiting for me somewhere in the future. I think the plans are being made as we speak. Anyway, that should be really fun. So I'm going to be going on spring. But you're right. They do absorb a lot. Here, I'll tell you a story. This is a fucking funny story. This is how much they absorb. <laughs> All right. So my kid used to do these little kitty triathlons. He was pretty good at them, actually. He had his strongest parts of the triathlon were the water part. He was good at the water part, and he was really good at the bike part. The running part, I think he inherited uh, my uh, not-so-fast genes in that department. But, man, on the bike, he was faster than almost any kid. And uh, in the water, he could, he was as fast or as even with any kid. So he had to either close the gap on the bike or open the gap on the bike because he would lose the gap on the running anyway. So I have a couple of interesting stories from these little triathlons. One time, he's, he's a kid, right? He's like five years old at the most. We're at this triathlon, little kitty triathlon in, um, Santa Cruz or Aptos, or it's, it's down by the coast in California. And his group lines up and the first part, the first part is going to be the, the water part. So they're there, they've got their suits on. <laughs> and this woman who's running this leg of, well, she's, I think running the whole thing, but she's talking, she's talking to them about this particular leg. And she says, Oh, look at all you young, young men here. Oh, this is so great. President Obama would be so proud of you. And my kid says, if President Obama was here, he'd call out the army and kill us all. (laughs) I have no idea where he got that from. And you should have seen the look on this woman's face. She was like totally fucking stunned. And my, and my ex-wife was there. And you should have seen the look on her face. If, if there were daggers that could come out of her eyes, it would be, it would be happening. Now, I, would, I did not prompt him to say that. He said it on his own volition. That was his uh, Scorpio rising moment. Okay, well, you got three chords and you're almost there. Well, uh, you know, you, you're going to be my Sherpa, Mr. Rue 9. We're going to do a few Zoom sessions here. You record me up soon, hopefully. Uh, let's see. I was a punk before you were a punk. That's the song by the Tubes, by the way. And I could actually say that. I was a punk. Although, 
if you go back to the 50s, Blackboard Jungle and all that stuff, there were a lot of punks in the 50s. So there were probably punks before I was. By the way, punk is a derogatory term. Did you know that? At, at a point in time, it was a slang term for a faggot or a homosexual. Mark Matheny in the house. What's going on? Good to see you. Let's see. Who else do we have? Kabuki Theater. Uh, let's see. No, you shouldn't feel bad, Kelly. You probably feel bad about enough stuff already. Give yourself a little break. Wendy says, we need shipping news from Mark. Yeah, that would be good. So, Lisa, you've not changed your chat name to Queen Lisa yet. I'm still waiting for that. Oh, uh, let's see. Beth Berry's here, double B. Vacated the shipping world. Ooh, good for you, Mark. My son was four years old when he would talk about past life experiences. That's not common, but it's not uncommon. That's very interesting. Victoria Newland comes completely to mind. Yes, we will stop. We will have a little bit of a Newland excavation here and then some. Uh, the Kagans are the Kagans are on the clock, but not just the Kagans, by the way, and not just the uh, the Kagans that you know. Kazars with the ancient blood oaths. You're getting very close there. Children are very wise and perceptive until it's programmed out of them. That's true. You know, that was one of the things I tried to do with my son. I tried to keep him as free and spontaneous as possible without allowing him to go wild. And I, and I hope that that seed that I planted in there at some point in time will sprout into cultivated awareness. The architects of affliction. Savage in a thong. He was a savage in a thong. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have? C. Pines is around. There's Tondar. Oh, who else do we have? Anybody else? Uh, I think we're about close there. We're, I think we're caught up. JMP Love says, I bet. I bet we'd have teenage kicks. Yes. Sister Nino. I still think that'd be a, a great name. Um, it is the name of a town in Italy. Let's see. W.C. Ray. Who else do we have here? I am going on as many spring breaks as I can nowadays. I think the closest spring break I ever got to was going to the Winter Music Conference in uh, Miami. I've got stories about that, too. My oldest daughter is a monkey. They are pranksters. My kid has pranked me a couple times. He, My son loved Impractical Jokers. You are very white RPM. I am very white. I got no problem with that. I'm very white. But, but, I'm not going to go there. Um, okay, Aptos. Yes, good times in Aptos. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I know. Isn't that funny shit? He said some stuff that I can't even, I, he said stuff that I can't, I can't talk about here. 
like, where the fuck did you come up with that? The things I didn't even talk about, by the way. Howdy said we should ask two, three old questions while they're still connected. I think that's, uh, that's good. I agree with that. Out of them. Hey, Taze, out of the mouth of babes. Oh, I know he was, he was so damn funny. I mean, he really was funny. He was like a physical comic genius when he was a kid. He would do things to make other kids laugh physically. He was hilarious. All right, enough reminiscing. Let's uh, let's let's get into the here and now. The here and now is Ukraine, and the scam is on. The big scam is on. The we got a money scam happening with Ukraine. We have all these fundraisers now that are popping up like mushrooms all over the place. Who's going to get the money? Where's it going to go? So uh, we have some royal scammers here. Absolute royal scammers. Let's start with the minor and move to the major royal scammers. Okay. Which one can I connect with? How about this? Hopefully I don't get too many, like, take this, accept this, block this. Uh, let's see what we got here. Well, let's see the damn picture. Come on. We're not going to get to see the picture. All right, let me go back. Can I get this without being blocked? All right, let's start here. I hate all this. All these like billboards now. Sign up, sign up, sign up to our newsletter. No, no, no. No, I don't want to. Okay, here we go. Uh, Ukraine-born Mila Kunis and husband Ashton Kutcher pledged to match $3 million in aid donations. There's something kind of dirty about the name Mila Kunis. You look at her, it's like, oh, yeah, that is definitely a Mila Kunis. Kutcher, by the way, is a Mason, and he's got. I think he's got this. Uh, he's got a weird relationship with his brother. I think he's got a brother that has some kind of disability or may have died. I have to, I have to go back into my uh, Ashton Kutcher files. So he had that show, Punked. That was. I mean, he made a lot of money off Punked. On MTV. Of course, he was in that 70s show and some movies, including The Butterfly Effect, which is about the repercussions of time travel and what happens when you fuck with the future. Um, and he was 
Demi Moore's husband, which a lot of people seem to forget, which is one of the weirdest fucking things ever, right? Weird. And he stated that when he was young, he either wanted to marry Jennifer Aniston or Demi Moore. And I guess Demi Moore was the lucky one. Demi Moore, of course, uh, from, of all places, Roswell, New Mexico. Born and raised in Roswell, New Mexico. So Kutcher is a Mason. Uh, Kunis is from Ukraine, speaks fluent Russian. They're both probably CIA trolls. The events that have unfolded in Ukraine are devastating. There is no place in this world for this kind of attack on humanity, Kunis said in a video posted. So apparently they had some kind of a dinner with um, Zelensky a few years ago. I think she's an Aries. So you've got a bunch of um, money supposedly benefiting flexport.org and airbnb.org. Flexport.org is organizing shipments of relief supplies to refugee sites in Poland, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, Moldova. Airbnb is providing short, free short-term housing to refugees fleeing, and yet they're shutting down their operation in Russia. Airbnb is kind of a cancer onto the world. And I get it. Like it's offered people more choices and more affordable places to lay your head at night. Um, I'm using Airbnb for the first time in my life on the spring break tour. I never used it before. And I'm okay with not using Airbnb ever again because I seen what it does to communities like the one that I lived in and lived nearby where they've got probably somewhere between 12 to 1300 homes that have been flipped into Airbnbs. What does that do to a small town in the local housing market? It completely ruins it. And you have a temporary community, which is what, what the people in the city council, they absolutely love that shit. The mayor, city council, city manager, they love all these temporary residents. They get the money, they get the tax dollars, they get them to come into town, spend a bunch of money on tchotchkes, and then split. They take their problems back to where they live. So I was talking to a friend. I'm like, can we somehow convince Airbnb that Fredericksburg is pro-Putin? so that they can uh, pull out of Fredericksburg. I'm not sure how we do that. I don't think the support would be roundly uh, accepted in Fredericksburg. As much as they have conservative German roots, the, the, the business decisions they make are very liberal and very corporate liberal. Anyway, you got these two grifters. They're out on the circuit. Mila Kunis. And then, of course, we have this corpse who's been resurrected from the dead. 
That's uh, Bob Geldof, speaking of Irish. Among lineup for fundraising event in support of Ukraine. Oh, yeah, because Live Aid went so well the first time. If you've ever read about the backstory of Live Aid and what happened with all of the money and the supplies, it's a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. It all went into the hands of a crazy, uh, either Ethiopian or Eritrean, I forget which one, I think it was Ethiopian, warlord. <laughs> he took everything. He took everything. He took all the food supplies some of which were rotting on the dock because they just didn't have the infrastructure to distribute all the food that went there. So what they could pull in, they hoarded for themselves, and then they gave it out to the people that supported them. And the ones that didn't support them, well, they continued on their path towards famine, and they were being starved out by this guy. So instead of dealing with the guy, instead of dealing with the the mad tyrants that had been put into power by the NGOs in the in the corporate West, they're going to deal with the hunger issue. They didn't realize that the hunger issue had to deal with this guy and him essentially starving people out. So they're going to send this guy the food and they're going to send this guy the money, and it's a fucking disaster. Now produce some great music. David Bowie, Freddie Mercury duet, of course, will go down in history. But as a fundraiser, it tells you everything you know about why fundraisers are dangerous and most mostly a grift. I remember when I was doing, uh, I, I had a I had a concert that I did with Paul Horn and Stephen Kent at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And I needed to work with uh, a, a nonprofit. So it's how the world works, okay? I needed to work with a nonprofit and give the nonprofit part of the, part of the gate. The reason why I needed to work with a nonprofit is because if I had a nonprofit involved, my insurance costs for that event went way down. So I knew somebody, she was this young woman who I liked. She wasn't a grifter, you know, I hung out with her a little bit. You want to say young, younger than me. At that time I was 48, 49, right around there. I think it was around 49. Wasn't 50 yet. I was 48, 49, I was 49, wasn't 50 yet. Anyway, um, No, I was younger than that. I was 45. I was 45. Boy, that seemed like a long time ago now. Anyway, she was cool. I liked her. I forget her name, but I think I still have her sweater. She left her sweater in my car. I never gave her sweater back to her. Not because she took her sweater off in a compromising fashion. She just took her sweater. I, I, I'm not even sure why she was in my car. I think, I think I met her one night for dinner in LA. Anyway, she was cool. Her name was Lauren. I really liked her. I think she had her head and heart in the right place. So she had this um, nonprofit where she was feeding Africa. You know, she was helping people in Africa 
and get food, but it wasn't like this dude. She was very small, very grassroots. I'm like, okay, I like her. And I'll make her part of my event. So she came up and she gave a brief presentation. And I did. I gave her a portion of the proceeds from my concert to her organization. And it saved me a lot of money on insurance. So there's there there's a reason why a lot of these um, events happen as fundraisers. It's because of that. The insurance incentivizes you to do that. It's kind of weird, right? Coming up here, do you get enough love? Do you get your teenage kicks? You're not a teenager anymore. Come on. The astrological cat has joined us. So, um, but when I was putting this concert together, there was this group, and I've told the story before, but some of you are new. I'll tell it again. There was this group that was trying to uh, publicize the life of, and, and have this memorial for Daniel Pearl. And Daniel Pearl was a journalist that got uh, killed in Iraq. So there was this Daniel Pearl Foundation. And they reached out to me and they wanted me to include, you know, Daniel Pearl and the Daniel Pearl Foundation in my event. And I said, no. <laughs> And, and the reason I said no was because it felt like I was being played. And the, and the people who were pushing this were shocked because I don't think anybody had said no to them anyway. It tells you, it gives you a little bit of behind the scenes look at what happens with these events and how they're incentivized. People get in, they want to, they want to promote, you know, their agenda through other people's events. And some people just aren't buying it. And I wasn't buying it. Laura and I bought, I knew I hung out with her. She was cool. Uh, the Daniel Pearl people take a hike. Okay. So here we go. Bob Geldof and Imelda May have been announced as part of the lineup for a musical and arts event launch to raise money for Ukraine. Now it's not the Ukraine, but Ukraine, the night for Ukraine will be held at the Roundhouse in North London on Wednesday evening with the funds being donated to the Disasters Emergency Committee appeal to provide aid to people fleeing Ukraine. So now we have this big humanitarian crisis. I showed you the videos yesterday. Did it look like there was a big humanitarian crisis going on there? No, it looked like the railway stations were being artificially blocked off and congested. Ukrainian-born pop duo Bloom Twins, who helped organize the event, will also perform alongside Pretenders star Chrissy Hind and Ukrainian baritone and principal artist for the Royal Opera House, Yuri Yurchuk. So you have the Bloom Twins there. We got a little bit of Gemini action happening. Irish singer Geldof said he was keen to get involved with the fundraising event and wanted to do what he could to support the Ukrainian people. He added, at least it stops me feeling so utterly impotent if only for an hour or two. You can do the same by simply showing up and enjoying yourself. See you there. Bloom Twins explained that Ukrainians, that is Ukrainians have been humbling to see the support their country was receiving from the rest of the world. 
well, what about the rest of the fucking people in the world? Like, how about some of the people in Ireland who had their lives completely cratered and shut down, their businesses cratered and shut down due to COVID-19? Like, where's the relief for those people or the Scottish people or any of the other people in the world who had their lives hijacked and stolen by these governments and the ridiculous mandates and their poisonous and toxic injections? Like, where are the fundraisers for them? There are no fundraisers for them. They should have something called COVID. But of course, if they did, the money probably go into the grifters' hands and never really reach the people that it's supposed to reach. But they don't want to do that because it would support the middle class and the lower middle class who are hanging by a fucking thread. But they'll do it for the people of, of Ukraine and you know this humanitarian crisis and the refugee crisis. So at some point, we'll go through and we'll add up and we'll tally all the money that's being raised, it'll probably approach somewhere around triple digits. And of course, because here in the West, we have a, uh, a pathological uh, relationship with altruism, right? Pathological altruism, we'll do that. We'll absolutely do that. The West has a death switch that's built into it. We'll look into that today a little bit. But what we won't do is we won't support the people that have lost their businesses, the people that are, are really, again, hanging by a thread. And now with gas approaching five, six, seven, eight dollars a gallon, you know, we're looking at the kill shot. But no fundraisers for them. But go ahead, run these fundraisers for Ukraine. And Maybe, just maybe, they might get a few nights in an Airbnb somewhere. And maybe they'll get it in Ukraine. All right. Enough for that. Bob Geldof, go away. Go away. Um, another highly connected Illuminarian. So let's get into what uh, the subject of the day is. And let's talk about the Kagans, the Kagan family, because the Kagans are the architects of what's going on. And it's not just Victoria Newland and Donald Kagan, which I came to understand this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the Kagans and we're also going to look at the, 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 the grand scion of the neocons, Norman Potteritz. And we're going to look at where Norman Potteritz comes from and what Norman Potteritz's contributions to American politics, global politics, have to do with Ukraine. So let's get into the Kagans a little bit here. These are the people that um, let's see. Here we go. 
Kagan sounds like Kurgan, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like Kurgan from Highlander. I love the Kurgan. He's more interesting than uh, the Highlander. He's way more interesting. Okay, here we go. You know, I was a kid that rooted for the bad guys to get away from the crimes on, on certain movies. Like, Come on, you can do it. You can do it. Okay. What does that say about me? Scorpio rising. There you go. Robert Kagan. Let's start with Robert Kagan. This, this is the husband of Valerie Newland. I was uh, texting with TJ this morning on Twitter, and he posted something about Valerie Newland. And I called her Battle Axe Bertha with biscuits. So Robert Kagan, born September 26, 1958, is an American neoconservative scholar and critic of U.S. foreign policy and a leading advocate of liberal interventionism. A co-founder of the neoconservative project for the New American Century, he's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So these people are globalists, they're internationalists. That's who they are. These are the same people that Anthony Sutton splits wide open across the breadth of his career in at least six published books, although he doesn't quite come out and say neoconservatives. He does mention the word internationalist, and these people are internationalists, that their agenda is not domestic. It is not American. It's clearly not America first. It has to do with their international causes that are really just cover for their family, their group, uh, their elite community, and ultimately their tribe. And their tribe originates from the part of the world that we're talking about. Now, the Kagans are Lithuanian. This other family that I'm about to talk about, the, the Potteritz family, particularly Norman Potteritz, come from Ukraine. So these are the people from that region. So they have a bloodline that goes back to that region. Lithuania is on the other side of Belarus, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, borders Ukraine. So you have Lithuania, Belarus, Moldova, Ukraine, Russia, and Poland, all in that area. So let's keep going with the Kagans here. The co-founder of the Conservative uh, Council of Foreign Relations, he's CFR. Kagan has been a foreign policy advisor to U.S. Republican presidential candidates, as well as Democratic administrations via the Foreign Affairs Policy Board. They don't care. They have no alliance to the right. They have no alliance to the left. They change spots like a leopard. William Crystal, Irving Crystal's son, Irving Crystal, another neocon, scion of the neocons, great grand scion of the neocons, Irving Crystal. William Crystal changes his spots like a leopard. He's a he's a, a, a neoconservative when Barack Obama is in office. And then when Trump is in office, he becomes a neoliberal. So it, it all depends on who's in power, but they manage to shapeshift and work their grift with whomever is in office. Doesn't matter. 
It really doesn't matter. Vicki Newland was kind of on the outs there during the Trump administration. She wasn't there. She's back again with Biden. She was there with Obama. She, she and her husband, this guy, were the architects, but not just the two of them. Remember now, it's a family affair. We're going to get into the other side of the Kagan family. Uh, here we go. He writes a monthly column on world affairs for the Washington Post. During the 2016 U.S. presidential election campaign, Kagan left the Republican Party due to the party's nomination of Donald Trump and endorsed the Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton for president. Now, when Bush was around, he they were fine with being Republicans. Like this guy wrote, you know, part of the project for the new American century. This was the the uh, the clear break doctrine. He's got his fingerprints all over. He was fine with being a Bush Republican, but somehow he found Trump to be revolting. So him, Bill Kristol, and all the other neoconservatives flipped their party alliance again. And now they're back. They don't care. That's interesting that, that they would do this with Trump. And I still think that Trump's hand was forced to hire uh, John Bolton. I think that was a Sheldon Adelson move. Anyway, uh, personal life and education. Robert Kagan was born in Athens, Greece. So he's not even born in the United States. His father, historian Donald Kagan, a sterling professor of classics and history, emeritus at Yale University, and a specialist in the history of the Peloponnesian War, was of Lithuanian Jewish descent. So his father is born in Lithuania. If you go back and look at the history of Lithuania, it's very interesting. Very interesting. And maybe I'll do a, a, a kind of a, a sidebar on that tomorrow and how it relates to this sharing of power between what I'd call two principalities of power, which that model ex has morphed and exists into today's world. These two principalities of power that share position it has its roots in Lithuania. Um, maybe I'll get into that tomorrow. It's very interesting, by the way. So we know that that's where their roots are. Okay, so um, his brother Frederick, now this is important because this is the family affair. His brother Frederick is a military historian and author. Oh yeah, we're going to get into Frederick. And Frederick's wife. See, this is a family affair. We got Vicki Newland, who, by the way, never took the Kagan name. And I think it's important because her last name means new land. New land. And what they were doing with Ukraine was their attempt to create a new land. She was the mother, the mother superior, the cancer. She's a cancerian. She's the battle axe Bertha with biscuits giving birth to the new land, which is the repatriation of Ukraine for this group, because this is where they come from. They want it back. They want their territory back. They want the Khazarian Caliphate. That's what they want. And that's what they started. Kagan is married to American diplomat Victoria New Land, 
who served as Deputy National Secretary Advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney and Under Secretary of State of Affairs in the Biden administration since April 2021. And previously as Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs in the Barack Obama administration. Newland held the rank of career ambassador, the highest diplomatic rank in the United States Foreign Service. She is noted for her criticism of Russian policies. She's noted for it, but is she truly opposed to it? That's the big question, isn't it? In 1983, King was foreign policy advisor to the new Republican representative, Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp, by the way, <clears throat> played football for the uh, Buffalo Bills in the uh, AFL. His son, Jeff, also played football, played quarterback, had a little run there as a backup for the San Francisco 49ers. Kemp was very smart. He was one of those guys who, um, while he was on the plane and they were flying to a game somewhere, he was reading The Economist. Uh, Kemp ran for president. Not a very good job. Uh, from 1984 to 1986, under the administration of Ronald Reagan, he was a speechwriter for Secretary of State George P. Schultz, a member of the Hoover Institute, but not one of the better ones, uh, and a member of the United States Department of State Policy Planning Staff. From 86 to 88, he served in the State Department Bureau of Inter-American Affairs. In 1997, Kagan co-founded the now-defunct neoconservative think tank project for the new American century with William Crystal. It's defunct because it was a limited hang. They did what they needed to do. They crafted the clear break doctrine, which they used. They had it all baked, ready to go, and then 9-11 happened. So these two are engineers of the social uh, and economic international governmental policy in a post 9-11 world. They're the ones that author it. Through the work of the PNAC from 1998, Kagan was an early and strong advocate of military action in Syria, Iran, Afghanistan, as well as to remove Mr. Hussein from his regime of power. So they are into regime change. These are the architects of regime change. Now, where it gets fuzzy is the relationship with Russia because they were part of that relationship with Russia for a very long time. This is what Anthony Sutton gets into, that there's no distinction between the Russian communist state and the American capitalist state. They were hand in glove since the inception of the Bolshevik revolution. And these people are essentially descendants, ideological descendants from the Bolsheviks. Some of whom are actually, if I'm not mistaken, genealogical descendants from the Bolsheviks. Okay, let's keep going here. In January 2002, Kagan and Crystal falsely claimed in a Weekly Standard article that Saddam Hussein was supporting the existence of terrorist training camps in, in Iraq, complete with a Boeing 707 for practicing hijackings and filled with non-Iraqi radical Muslims. Kagan and Crystal further alleged that the September 11th hijacker, Mohammed Atta, 
met with an Iraqi intelligence official several months before the attacks. The allegations were later shown to be false. Right. But it doesn't matter because these guys are selling the Iraq war. They're liars. They're career liars. And their fingerprints are all over pretty much every major military action, incursion, and regime change in post-Vietnam America. Not everyone, but most of them. From 1998 until August 2010, Kagan was a senior associate with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was appointed senior fellow in the Center for the United States on United States and Europe at the Brookings Institute in September 2010. During the 2008 presidential campaign, he served as a foreign policy advisor to John McCain. It was William Crystal who uh, suggested, supported, and pushed for the nomination of Sarah Palin as the vice presidential candidate. Let's see, since 2011, Kagan has also served on 25 member State Department's Foreign Affairs Policy Board under Secretaries of State Hillary Clinton and John Kerry. Uh, Andrew Basevich referred to Kagan as the chief neoconservative foreign policy theorist in reviewing Kagan's book, The Return of History and the End of Dreams. A profile in The Guardian described Kagan as being uncomfortable with the neocon title and stated, he insists he is a liberal and progressive in a distinctly American tradition. Really? Like he's a Jeffersonian liberal? Did Jefferson uh, espouse regime change? I don't think so. In uh, 2008, Kagan wrote an article titled Neocon Nation, Neoconservatism, 1776. How about that? for world affairs, describing the main components of American neoconservatism as a belief in the rectitude of applying U.S. moralism to the world stage, support for the U.S. to act alone, the promotion of American-style liberty and democracy in other countries, the belief in American hegemony. It's a bunch of bullshit. He's just hijacking the principles of 1776, grafting them onto his grift for him and his family, his group, so that they can essentially um, pretend, pretend to be patriots and conservatives. They don't care. All, all they care about is their self-interest, their family self-interest, and their tribal self-interests. And they're very good at moving those self-interests along and using their networks and their considerable economic weight, might, and power to influence regimes really since Nixon. The only one that they're not that involved in is the Trump administration. Anyway, um, you can see where he's, uh, where he's coming from. In Kagan's book of Paradise and Power, America and Europe in the New World Order, published on the eve of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, talk about timing, created something of a sensation 
through its assertions that Europeans tended to favor peaceful resolutions of international disputes. While in the United, while the United States takes a more Hobbesian view, in which some kinds of disagreement can only be settled by force, or as he put it, Americans are from Mars and Europe is from Venus. When it comes to settling national priorities, determining threats, defining challenges, and fashioning and implementing foreign and defense policies, the United States and Europe have parted ways, writes Mr. Kagan, concluding in words already famous in another context, Americans are from Mars and Europeans are from Venus. No, you're from fucking Mars. You're from Mars. Americans are from Jupiter because we are expansive, we're funny, and we are Jupiter and Sagittarian in the sense that we don't want anybody to tread on us. Americans are, Ju are from Jupiter. You're from fucking Mars. And you've, you have essentially run your Mars-like program on the American people. It's funny, He's a, isn't he a Libra? He's a Libra. All right, let's take a look at his brother. We know about Vicky. Let's take a look at his brother. His brother's interesting. Well, he's not really interesting. None of these people are really interesting. But his connections are interesting. All right, so where's his brother? Frederick. Let's take a look at Fred Kagan. It's a family affair. Kagan, Frederick W. Kagan is American resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. How about that? And a former professor of military history at U.S. Military Academy at West Point. So this lard ass is, if you can see the picture, he's got a, uh, a, a pretty wide... Uh, got there. So this lard ass, who probably never served in the in the uh, U.S. Army, was teaching military history at West Point. So what he's doing is he's cultivating and grooming future generals. Why? because he wants them to adopt the neocons strike first policy. The neocons strike first regime change policy. He wants to implement this idea that Americans are from Mars. And he wants to teach it to as many American commanding officers as possible. Kagan graduated from Hamden High before he earned a BA in Soviet and East European studies. You wonder why? And a PhD in Russian and Soviet military history from Yale University. He worked as an assistant professor of military history at West Point from 1995 to 2001, an associate professor of military history from 2001 to 2005. The courses that he taught at West Point included the history of military art, grand strategy, revolutionary warfare, and diplomatic history. 
Kagan's brother is the foreign policy analyst, Robert Kagan, whose wife, Victoria Newland, CEO for the Center for New American Security, also known as CNAS. Frederick Kagan is married to Kimberly Kagan, president of the Institute for the Study of War. So that's his wife right here. The picture that I'm showing on the screen is uh, this tub of lard walking around Basra in 2008. And there's his wife and they got, they got their little khaki on. She's got a little khaki vest on and they're touring the uh, ground zero of their military strategy and victory. We'll get to her in a second. He and his father, Donald Kagan, was a professor at Yale and a fellow at the Hudson Institute, both authored While America Sleeps, Self-Delusion, Military Weakness, and The Threat to Peace Today. The book argued in favor of a large increase in military spending and warned of future threats, including from potential revival of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction program. Frederick, along with his brother, Robert Kagan, who was a member of the Aspen Strategy Group, and their father, Donald, were all signatories to the project, the New American Century Manifesto, Rebuilding America's Defenses. Kagan authored the real Iraq study group report at the AIE's rival to the ISG report of James Baker and Lee H. Hamilton in December 2006. The AEI report titled Choosing Victory, a plan for success in Iraq, was released on January 5, 2007. And Kagan was said to have won over the ear of, a, of President uh, George W. Bush, strongly influencing his subsequent surge plan for changing the course of the Iraq war, along with retired General Jack Keane, retired Colonel Joel Armstrong, and retired Major General Major Daniel Dwyer. Kagan is credited as one of the intellectual architects of the surge plan. According to Foreign Policy's Kagan's essay, we are not the Soviets in Afghanistan, influenced the strategic thinking of Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, who reportedly influenced Gates' decision to support sending 30,000 additional troops to Afghanistan. So where were these people when uh, Joe Biden pulled their, you know, pulled out of Afghanistan? Well, they were right there. Victoria Nuland is got a ringside seat. So they're the architects of that plan as well. Oh man, these people need to be fucking exiled. I'm I'm sorry. The troubles, the troubles that have brought upon this country, that have been brought upon this country and other parts of the world, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, and now Ukraine, they are all pointing to this family. And they're interconnected, very small but extremely powerful and influential group, their network, the neoconservatives, the neoliberals, whatever you want to call them, they've got their fingerprints on all this stuff, and they still do. Now, the question is, and this is the big question, and maybe we can cover this tomorrow, 
Do they have their fingerprints inside of the Putin regime? That's a very important question. Because when you get into Antony Sutton, you realize that both the left and the right are being funded by the same people. It's a Rothschild strategy. The Rothschilds didn't care who won a war because they were funding both sides and whoever won the war would be beholden to them. This is one of, I think, the most important questions to ask and one of the hardest ones to answer. Let's take a little bit. Let's take a little look here at uh, Kim Kagan. Kimberly Kagan, born 1972, is an American military historian. She heads the Institute for the Study of War, has taught at West Point. What the fuck is she doing teaching at West Point? Yale, Georgetown University, and American University. Kagan has published in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Weekly Standard, and elsewhere. She supported the 2007 troop surge in Iraq and has since advocated for an expanded and restructured American military campaign in Afghanistan. In 2009, she served on Afghanistan Commander General Stanley McChrystal's strategic assessment team. Kimberly Kagan is a daughter of Calvin Kessler, a Jewish accountant, in school teacher from New York City and his wife, Frances. She received her BA in classical civilization and her PhD from Yale University at Yale. Kagan met her husband, Frederick Kagan, who's an American scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, son of Donald Kagan, a well-known historian and brother of Robert Kagan, another well-known writer and publicist. Robert Kagan's wife is Victoria Newland, blah, blah, blah. Kagan held an Olin postdoctoral fellowship in military history at Yale in international security studies from 2004 to 2005. She's an affiliate of Harvard's Olin Institute for Strategic Studies, all these fucking think tanks where she was a national security fellow. These people have high level security clearance, by the way. Kagan has conducted eight battlefield circulations of Iraq from since May, 2007 for the MNF-I commanding general, three of which were in Afghanistan for the United States Central Command, CENTCOM. This person has never served in the military and yet has access to the highest levels of military commanders, strategy, and defense department budgets, thus highly influencing the military-industrial complex. Kagan is the founder and president of the Institute of the Study of War, ISW. ISW describes itself as a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank, which seeks to provide research and analysis specifically regarding the issues of defense and foreign affairs. ISW produces comprehensive reports on the realities of war, focusing on military operations, enemy threats, and political trends in diverse conflict zones. On uh, May 25th, 2010, Kagan participated in briefing on Capitol Hill, focusing on Iraq's political crisis that included remarks from Iraqi Ambassador Samir uh, Sumadali and Kenneth Pollock. They're probably shills. Senior fellow uh, uh, Brookings at the Brookings Institute, Kagan also participated in a Brookings Institution event entitled Prospects for Afghanistan's Future, Assessing the Outcome of the Afghan Presidential Election. 
alongside Dr. Michael E. O'Hanlon. Kagan's organization, ISW, funded the creation of a 34-minute documentary, The Surge, The Untold Story, with CIA Director General David Petraeus, ISW Chairman, U.S. General uh, Jack Keane, and LTG James Dubik, retired, describing the surge strategy in Iraq and how some high-ranking U.S. officers claimed to pacify the country and thus won the war. Along with General Keane, Kagan is an advisory board member of Spirit of America. It's another 501c. They should have their nonprofit statuses revoked, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's an organization that supports the safety and success of Americans serving abroad and the local partners they seek to help. Amazing. Let's look at the Spirit of America. Spirit of America. Uh, working with the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, Ukraine, the Spirit of America funded the establishment and optimization of Army FM, a Ukrainian Ministry of Defense radio station that provides information and entertainment to soldiers defending their country in eastern Ukraine. It's a propaganda channel who are suffering from a barrage of Russian propaganda. So this is this guy, Jim Hake. In 2010, uh, Mr. Hake worked to formalize the ties between commanders in Afghanistan and his organization as commander support regime with support from senior Marine officers who developed good working relationship with the group in Iraq. Okay, so here we go. Now you get to see the other uh, stooges. This resulted in scrutiny from Pentagon lawyers who ruled that sending goods to commanders violated ethics rules with help from John Bellinger, Jay Johnson, General Joe Dunford, and General Jim Mattis, who was inside the Trump administration. The rules were changed to allow the CSP to operate. Who is this guy, Jim Hake? Let's look at him. Not much there for Jim Hake. We've reached the uh, cul-de-sac. Okay. There's going to be a part two to this because I couldn't get into all of it today. I'll tell less stories tomorrow. You're looking at four people. Four people. Robert Kagan, his brother, Robert Kagan's wife, his brother's wife, four people. Four people who have managed to accrue an enormous amount of power and influence through the military, through the government itself, through the military-industrial complex, through the media, these people have accrued a disproportionate amount of power. They're the ones that are right now running our foreign policy. They're also the ones that are right now running our economic policy. They are the architects of affliction. And even beyond affliction, destitution. And I, pro I haven't really gone down that path, but I bet it wouldn't take me very long to see the six degrees of separation between some of these people and the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. 
this is for all intents and purposes. This group, these four people, you could throw William Crystal in as the thumb on their hand. This is the hand that is running American foreign and military policy. They didn't do it during the Trump administration. They weren't there. They denounced their relationship with the Republican Party, which is an interesting piece here. But as soon as Joe Biden was elected, they got right back in and look where we are again. We're in the business of regime change and a bad regime change. And I'm going to try to somehow link this up with Russia because there, there is this connection between what they do, what the neocons have done, and the internationalists, the right, left, false paradigm, the capitalists and the communists all working together towards the same goal. All right, that's it for today. Join me here tomorrow on 15 Minutes of Flame. Um, you can download the podcast and it's across all these different podcast distribu distributed networks. Don't miss part two because we're going to go deeper and we're going to get into the grand, the, the grand dragon of all this and where it all comes from and where he comes from. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to stay what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Have yourself a blessed day. Bye for now.